brace yourself because you're about to dive into another free first hour episode of the Higher Side Chats. And we just want to let you know that whether you're looking for a companion through your paranoid insomnia, entertaining yourself through one of life's mundane activities, or trying to ward off the internal screams of all those sad, smothered souls around the office, THC is here. And you should know that every episode of the Higher Side Chats has an entire second hour for Plus members. Sign up at thehiresidechatsplus.com and you'll get years of Plus show archives, lifetime forum access, a special invite to Greg Carlwood's monthly joint sessions, MP3s of THC music, bonus episodes, tour videos, and 10% off t-shirts, grinders, and whatever else ends up in the Higher Side store. It's $8 a month that you won't miss. So become a Plus member and treat yourself in these troubled times. Always action-packed and commercial-free, which means you'll unfortunately never hear my voice again. In the 1930s, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt addressed the nation through a series of radio broadcasts known as the Fireside Chats. His aim was to reassure the common man that our society would recover from its troubled times. Well, we're far from 1930, and I deal with a different kind of fire. For a new era of worldly frustration, we offer a fresh conversation. I'm Greg Carlwood, and these are the Higher Side Chats. Here we go, people, coming in hot. From sunny San Diego, I'm Greg Carlwood, and we are definitely no strangers to the world's weirdness, conspiracies, cryptids, crop circles, spell spirits, spaceships, and the rest of it. And anyone who digs beyond the surface level will find a Pandora's box of paranormal sagas and stories itching to be told. But the strange tale that takes the cake as the granddaddy of them all has to be the infamous Roswell incident. Where 72 years ago, in this very month of July, the Roswell Army Airfield put out a press release that they had found a crashed flying saucer in the New Mexico desert, only to reverse course with their weather balloon cover story the following day, and dedicated researchers have been off to the races ever since. Well, I figured with all the buzz permeating from this latest round of UFO enthusiasm, it might be time to dust off this case and re-examine the famous Roswell saga again in detail with the Roswell research duo that have been plugging away at this story for a long time. In fact, they have a combined 57 years of study into just this case alone, and I'm talking about Thomas J. Carey and Donald R. Schmidt. If you're unfamiliar, Tom Carey served in the Air Force in his younger days where he held a top-secret crypto clearance. His longtime interest in UFOs led him to becoming the MUFON State Section Director for Southeastern Pennsylvania in 1986. Since 1991, he's been solely focused on the Roswell case, and Tom also became a special investigator for the J. Allen Hynek Center for UFO Studies in 1992 and served on its board of directors from 1997 through 2001. Through that process, he partnered up with Donald Schmidt, who is the former co-director of the J. Allen Hynek Center for UFO Studies, where he served as director of special investigations for 10 years. Both of these fine gentlemen have written extensively about UFOs and the Roswell case, including several books they've written together, such as Witness to Roswell, Unmasking the Government's Biggest Cover-Up, Inside the Real Area 51, The Secret History of Wright-Patterson, The Children of Roswell, A Seven-Decade Legacy of Fear, Intimidation, and Cover-Ups, and the recently released UFO Secrets Inside Wright-Patterson. And with that, let's get into it. Keeping the dream alive, fresh off the plane from the annual UFO Festival in Roswell, New Mexico, 
Two dedicated Roswell researchers extraordinaire, Tom and Don, welcome to the higher side. Nice to be with you, Greg. Yes, absolutely. Same here. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for being here, guys. This is going to be a lot of fun. I think this audience is pretty well educated on the Roswell incident. It's obviously one of the foundational sagas for a show like this, but it is July. It's 72 years later. The annual UFO festival was just this past weekend. You guys have a new book out that New Page was kind enough to send to me, and we definitely have a spike in UFO coverage lately, and who better to talk about it than the dynamic duo with over 50 years of combined investigation into Roswell. So here we are, but I wanted to take a second and ask Tom about this top secret crypto clearance. I understand this is a clearance for cryptography. Can you tell us anything more about that? Did your experiences in the Air Force ever relate to the UFO issue, or did you at least get a context for how secrets are handled that became useful in the Roswell research? Well, no. Actually, you know, when you have the top secret slash whatever, in my case it was crypto, the encryption of messages and the decryption of messages, that's all you were clear top secret for instance i couldn't go into the pentagon and say hey i have a top secret clearance crypto let me see this or that it it wouldn't get you very far (laughs) so to answer your question i was in the air force before i ever heard of roswell and while i did have a sighting on the base it had nothing to do with roswell or other ufo incidents so i was pretty much busy trying to keep keep myself afloat in what I was doing. That was trying to stay out of the stockade, right? Yes, yes, yes. (laughs) Right on. And Don, you've written for decades about UFOs and Roswell, including several books with Tom, as I mentioned in the intro. In fact, in 2013, your book, Inside the Real Area 51, The Secret History of Wright-Patterson, was released. And now, six years later, you've released UFO Secrets Inside Wright-Patterson. I think some listeners might wonder what else we need to know about the Roswell case. Let them know what pieces of the puzzle this latest book adds that we didn't have before. How does this one move the needle? Well, for having worked personally with Dr. Jalen Hynek for those years that many felt that he had discounted the very notion of crash saucers and really displayed no interest at all. We have a whole new chapter demonstrating that, or actually, even the time he was at Project Blue Book, he was becoming more and more fascinated with the possibility. And then as he saw it, he would often comment, I'm an old man in a hurry when we'd be working together in the field. He realized that it was his one ace up his sleeve, so to speak, that he could finally trump the Air Force and coming up with physical evidence for the reality of the phenomenon. So we have a lot of new information regarding Heineck and even regarding Roswell, as he himself was uh, delving into it. We have a whole new chapter on uh, a lot of Len Stringfield's personal file cases that specifically focused on Wright-Patterson. And some may have been related to Roswell, and other cases may have pertained to other possible crash retrieval cases. But Roswell, and as you call it, Craig, it's the granddaddy. And just to quickly correct you, with the Air Force specifically, I should say, the Roswell Army Airfield putting out that famous press release on Tuesday, July 8th, 
that they had actually captured, which is a bit of a misnomer in itself, capturing the flying disc, the flying saucer. But it was a mere five hours later that same day that going up the chain of command, and this is where we become infamous, the balloon press conference in General Roger Ramey's office in Fort Worth, Texas at Carswell Armor Airfield, where they played the old switcheroo, and they came out with the alternative explanation. And that's the one that stuck. That's the one that for the next 30 years, the Air Force got away with their alternative solution to what actually crashed back in Roswell in 47. Mm, mm. Well, that is a great setup, and... 72 years. I mean, a lot has happened since then. Let me ask you about all the UFO news lately. I find it to be concerning and exciting, but it's definitely very controlled and methodical. You write in the book about the CIA's infiltration of media outlets. So when CNN, the New York Times, the Washington Post all start talking about these things, it's most likely because the media handlers want them to. What do you Roswell veterans think about what's happening here today? Well, Greg, we've had so many of these, oh boy, they're going to release it now episodes. I, quite frankly, am puzzled. Granted, they've released this video of this, and I think it's that video from the Navy that really has kept this thing going, where before it would be one person, like in 1974. Professor Robert Spencer Carr came out uh, down there in Florida and started talking about Hangar 18 at Wright-Patterson. It caused a big stir for a couple of days, but that was it. But this one, we've had several people of, of, you know, some standing express interest in bringing the UFO information out. Former Senator Harry Reid from Nevada. A couple of people that from the Defense Department, and you have this Louis Elizondo going around. He headed up a project for five years at the Defense Department trying to determine trends and things like that, which reminded me of Project Stork that they did back in the 1950s. But to answer your question, whether this is going to lead to disclosure, which is what I think you're hinting out, I, I am more there's a a more encouraged but i still don't think that the air force especially is ever going to admit this because they have too many skeletons in the closet you'd have to admit hey folks we've been lying to you for 72 years (laughs) how about that Uh, let's move on plus they have so many skeletons relating to how they suppressed the roswell case that i don't see the air force ever changing their position or commenting on, especially Roswell again, but the Navy, it might be something different. I hold my final thoughts in abeyance. I can be persuaded either way, but I'm sort of skeptical. (laughs) Well, I'm certainly skeptical. I mean, Harry Reid, as far as I understand, I mean, he has been one of the premier people to block things like audits of the Federal Reserve. And it's like, is this someone who really likes transparency and secrecy? Alizondo, he has strange connections to the CIA and counterintelligence, from what I understand. I don't know if these are the people that I want in charge of disclosure. This almost seems like a weaponized disclosure. Well, then then why don't we throw Tom DeLong into the mix as well? <laughs> throw him in. <laughs> I mean, my God, now we got a rock star that, I mean, 
who totally disavows Roswell. He he believes it was nothing more than a Nazi bell. Hmm. Here's a guy who's never been to Roswell, has never been to New Mexico, he never spoke to a single witness, never talked to either one of us, but now he's the new authority on Roswell. Well, so that kind of speaks of the whole you know, situation. And that's why we've been here before. And we can throw MJ-12 in the picture. And before that, with Heineck, with Gerald Ford. After that, Jimmy Carter. That these carrots have been dangled for years. And then they always, you know, come up with some alternative solution or situation. And ufology are the ones that sit there with the egg on the face. So it's like, is it intentional to discredit us? Or, you know, continue their smear camp? Or is it to cover up? The fact that they are experimenting with some new state-of-the-art technology, or are we dealing with something from the Soviet Union or China that it's a case of now we got to play catch-up and they're trying to coax Congress into providing new additional funding for the defense budget? So, again, buyer beware. <laughs> Indeed, and as you point out repeatedly in the book, it's the Air Force that's really kind of at the head of the documents that are involving Roswell. And in this latest push, it does seem to be a lot of Navy reports. And it seems like maybe we have some infighting between military branches. And well, and, well, that, that, and that is true, Craig. And I, I want to interrupt Tom. But when Project Blue Book was declassified in 1977, and much of it wasn't declassified. For example, it mentioned specifically over 20 gun camera cases. Well, where are these films? Where are these gun camera footage that could truly serve as physical evidence dealing with the phenomenon? And there are just a smattering, just a handful of Navy and Army cases in the Blue Book files. So if anybody believes that they weren't conducting their own investigations, and lest we forget, Roswell was an Army incident. Mm -hmm was not the Air Force. There was no Air Force back in July of 1947. Yes, and that becomes kind of the issue is you got to recontextualize exactly when certain branches were formed and everything, but it is a tangled mess, and a lot of these military branches are in competition. They don't necessarily work together on a lot of things. Well, and a wonderful recent example of this would be with Desert Storm, and I will never forget with Storm and Norman General Norman Schwarzkopf having his press conference and he was complaining that he didn't have open communication with the Navy or the Air Force. That very first raid, that very first night over Baghdad and the Air Force declared air supremacy over Iraq. Well, the Army didn't know if they were to march downtown Baghdad or not. And then they weren't hearing from the Navy who were still lobbing, you know, Tomahawk missiles into the city. So here was a recent example of where they're not on the same page. Mm -hmm. And I find, you know, that's amazing that after all these years, you're absolutely correct, Craig. They are in competition with one another. Unless we forget, uh, as far as even at the end of World War II, Curtis LeMay wanted to continue bombing Germany into submission and surrender. And Eisenhower felt it was only right that the army would march downtown Berlin and declare victory. 
So there's nothing new about this, and it's certainly it is, there's nothing nothing new about their UFO competition either. Right, exactly. That compartmentalization and competition definitely spills over into the UFO field. And I wanted to quote the book here because I think you hit on something super relevant when you say just a couple of weeks after the weather balloon explanation was accepted by the national media, the National Security Act was passed and the CIA, the National Security Council, and the Department of Defense were officially established. Well, people talk about a private cabal that acts autonomously within the government and this seems like the formation of it right here. I guess I would ask how you guys see that information being relevant to not only the Roswell situation, but also analyzing disclosure in general and the mainstream media's role in it. Well, as Don said, the event occurred in July of 1947, and there was no Air Force at that point. It was the Army Air Corps, which was part of the Army Air Forces, which was part of the Army. So you have the National Security Act of, I think it's September something or other, uh, 1947. You have the new Air Force and the CIA, which was formed out of the OSS and the Central Intelligence Group, CIG, as it was called back then. So you have all these new entities formed. You know, back then, World War II was just over. And the military was held in very high esteem by all the citizens of the United States. And so when they said it was a weather balloon, it was a weather balloon end of story. <laughs> so the media have never, I'm talking about the mainstream media, not cable TV, you know, where you have shows about everything. But the mainstream media depends upon their circulation I believe, upon their credibility for reporting. And UFOs, especially since the 1950s with the contactee situation, UFOs are a taboo subject. And Roswell falls right into that because in 1993-94, when Congressman Stephen Schiff instituted an investigation into the handling of documents relating to the Roswell incident. He was not trying to solve the Roswell incident, prove it one way or the other. He was trying to see whether the documents had been handled and classified correctly. Well, lo and behold, the documents had been destroyed by an unknown authority. Having been in the Air Force, I know in the military, you need authority to go to the bathroom. And the fact that something was like this was done under unknown authority leads to a speculation like um something really nefarious is going on here so the media the general media because you know in like cable tv it's you know sharks and ufos and ghosts are covered you know they have shows on those but the mainstream media does not want to cover UFOs. It's a taboo subject. You start covering UFOs. If, you know, if you're a congressman or a senator, oh, there goes Senator UFO. Boop, 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 boop. You know, the, the old theme song from Outer Limits. And it's a subject they don't want to deal with at all, unless it's like the New York Times. They bought the Project Mogul hook, line, and sinker. End of story. So 
I don't know if that answers your question, but my telephone interrupted my <laughs> No worries. No worries. I mean, I'm just thinking, you know, I don't have the TV network family tree in front of me, but a lot of these even cable networks and mainstream news organizations are owned by the same conglomerate companies up at the top. And it seems like, yes, taboo and ridicule are a factor, but the biggest factor seems to be the CIA's infiltration of the media establishment and them just completely being the gatekeepers as to what's covered and when it's covered and how it's covered, wouldn't you say? Well, Craig, you certainly remember that very famous expose that Carl Bernstein wrote for Rolling Stone. And he named names. And he went right down the list from the New York Times through Time Magazine, Newsweek, all the major newspapers and identified all the CIA infiltrators. And then to learn afterwards that there are buildings with thousands of CIA employees that every day they essentially write and rewrite the news. Right. And that should be disconcerting to all of us as Americans. The idea, and we often make the comment that if you truly want to hear what's going on in America, read the foreign press. <laughs> Yes. And as you were talking, there are five major owners now of all of the American media. And they're pretty much all on the same page. Exactly. And that too, the fact that we're not getting objective journalism, investigative journalism is a lost art. And the very thought that even reality shows aren't reality shows. I'm sorry, ladies and gentlemen, it's all professional wrestling. They are all scripted. Cheers to that. They, they don't like history. You know, American history is not taught or not shown on mainstream media. You do get some American history type shows on cable. But the mainstream media, like Don says, they're interested in ratings. And that's basically it. And uh, certain things are not covered because they want to keep up their credibility. Still, I believe major media is dying. I certainly believe that. Let's hope. <laughs> Absolutely. It's almost counterintuitive that they want their ratings, but then they don't want to cover the truth and thus they lose their credibility. Well, what is the truth? You know, there are certain subjects, though, Greg, that just the name of them is enough to cast aspersions on someone. Taboos <laughs> uh, is is one of those. Uh, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm still recovering. Well, Tom well, <laughs> and I like the site, and you may have heard of it, Greg. Uh, it was an old Japanese murder trial film 1950 and it was called the Rashomon effect and it essentially is a study not only in almost as an IQ test is not really a test for one's intelligence but rather their environment mm. the scope of how they were raised and who were their influences and their sources for their information. And as the defense presented one side, the prosecution presented another side. And the Rashomon effect is basically there's your opinion and there's my opinion. And then there's what really happened. And I guess it, it comes down to who is really proactively trying to determine what happened. And Tom and I would certainly challenge any one of the scoffers, any one of the skeptics to ever demonstrate how they have made any effort to determine what has happened. 
specifically regarding Roswell. Well, for sure, it is a tangled web of... Don brings up a good point there. The uh, late Peter Jennings, who had some credibility, he was Canadian, ABC, I think he was on ABC. Yes, ABC was the lead ABC. Yeah, he uh, was putting together a show on UFOs. This is just before he died. And he was going to cover Roswell. Well, you have to cover Roswell if you're going to put together, you know, your Bafo TV show. And he sent a crew down to Roswell. We went down there to guide the crew through the production of the Roswell segment, took them out to the crash site, gave them a briefing on what had happened. And Don knows this, that just the look on the crew's faces and the producer's faces I'm thinking this guy, that what we're saying is going in one ear and out the other. He's already made up his mind, or the show has, and the proof was in the pudding. Peter Jennings said, okay, regarding Roswell, it's a myth. Next subject. <laughs> and that was it. He, he didn't bring forth any supporting evidence why he concluded that Roswell was a myth. And they but, spent four days in the field working with us. They refused to talk to a single witness that we offered to provide, including Dr. Edgar Mitchell, who was there with us, and they wouldn't even talk to him. We had to insist, as Tom mentioned, on them going out to the crash site. And then they didn't use a single minute of the footage, the B-roll, that we provided. They concocted other networks that they asked us to provide for the actual premiere of the show, and as Tom said, the fact that within the opening minute, he used the word myth five times. Uh, that was their agenda. Yes, I know that has definitely been something that has riddled the ufology community for decades, but I'd say this audience is well past the denial position. And uh, to jump into the book, you know, one of the biggest criticisms of a conspiratorial story like Roswell is always... Well, you couldn't keep a secret this big. Someone would talk. And if you actually dig into it, you find people do talk. Maybe not carelessly in a public forum, but you have many, many anecdotes along the lines of, oh, well, my dad told me about this before he died, or he showed me a picture and said never to talk about it. Even Jesse Marcel Jr., whose dad was in the Air Force intelligence officer in charge of moving some of the material, he even stopped by his house to show his son, apparently. And it's just... These kind of stories are well, all over the place, so people do talk. Exactly, Craig. Let me just quickly jump in here, because you make the point that we hear to this day, that they couldn't keep this a secret, that it would have leaked out many years ago. Well, it has been leaking out for the past 40 years, and I'm sorry, people have not been listening. People, and again, the press, have been turning a deaf ear. And you mentioned Jess Marcel, and how about his dad, Jess Marcel Sr. When he went public in 1978 and he was dying of emphysema, you didn't read about this in the Times. You didn't read about this anywhere because the only publication that even touched it was the National Enquirer. So what does that say about as far as our media even back then? You have the senior intelligence officer of the first atomic bomb squadron coming forward on his deathbed and saying that I handled pieces of an actual flying saucer. And he was silenced. And the same has been for General Thomas DeBose and General Arthur Exxon and on and on and on. 
So that is an absolute fabrication, the idea, and not you, Greg, but I mean the idea that, well, it would have leaked out, you know, all this time. Well, it has been. Right. And the problem is they're not listening. They don't want to listen. They refuse to listen. So true. Yes. I'm trying to think back. Like Don says, you know, people talked among themselves. And Edgar Mitchell told us that he first heard about the the basic truths about Roswell after he, he walked on the moon. He came back and Edgar Mitchell's from the Roswell area. He grew up in Artesia, but I think he was I don't know if he was born in Roswell, but Artesia's pretty close. And the ranch down, yeah, south of Roswell, yeah. Yes, and all of a sudden, all these ranchers, they trusted him because, you know, he was a MIT scientist. He walked on the moon, astronaut. They felt that they could tell him what they knew about Roswell. And that's when he started, you know, being interested in the case. And that went on for years. And I'm trying to think back. I believe the first statement by a participant occurred in one of those men's magazines back in the early 70s. I don't know if it was Argosy or True or one of those magazines. They don't make them anymore. By a woman named Lydia Sleppy. She was involved in the case. She was trying to dictate a wire release for one of the news services. And the FBI cut her off, cease and desist. But that story appeared, I believe, around 1972 or 74. So, like Don says, the case has been leaking ever since. And we have a colleague of ours. We don't see him very often, but he's one of the abduction guys. You know, he's written a couple books about abductions. But he says, you know, I don't believe in Roswell. And I don't think it Well, why? Because they couldn't keep that secret. Well, guess what? They haven't kept it secret. But they use that thinking, well, you don't know anything and uh, you're not going to uh, challenge me. And so, I mean, just imagine, as Tom was describing, Dr. Edgar Mitchell and his credentials. I mean, there are few in this world that have higher credentials. And look what the American media did to him. I mean, he was immediately labeled as far as senile and demented and that he needed to be placed in a retirement facility. And he got a fair shake in the foreign press. But, I mean, it was scandalous what they did to him. You know, you're talking about an American hero, you know, an American treasure, and for nothing more than defending Roswell and the people that he grew up with, the people he knew personally, his neighbors, his friends, and then the high-ranking officers, as Tom mentioned, at the Pentagon that told him that this all was genuine it was authentic. It was true. And again, it was taboo. It was off limits. How dare you, Dr. Mitchell, step out of bounds and actually leak out information about this? So again, it's total fabrication, total nonsense that people haven't been trying to present the truth about this. It's just that the skeptics are always immediately right there to smear these people and make the next person think twice about coming forward. Well said. And I mean, I'm sitting right here with your latest book, 275 pages of anecdotes and plenty of stories of people talking. And this one mainly focuses on the fact that this material and these alien bodies made it to Wright-Patterson, which is in Ohio. And this is a line in the book that I found curious where you say, 
As a fitting tribute to Wright Patterson's dedication to our national security, the personal files of Nikola Tesla are preserved there. That's interesting, but I don't see the connection between housing Tesla's files and our national security because the rumors suggest that Tesla's work showcased energy systems and delivery methods that would have upset General Electric, Westinghouse, and the cartel of oil men, and oil control seems to have been the driving force for geopolitical games that hold us back more than anything. I guess I would just ask you to elaborate on that line and what your thoughts are on Tesla's papers and why keeping them locked up at Wright-Patterson speaks to its dedication to our national security. I think that was Don's. <laughs> oh, 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 I'm sorry. Uh, Don, are you there? Uh, I think it was yours. It was a point that was made by a former deputy commander at the base. At the time that Lester Holt with NBC News, we were trying to bring a film crew onto the base. And it was somebody at the museum who made that point that to suggest that Wright Pad had sub-levels, underground levels, and they brought up the Tesla papers, that everything was above board, that if you wanted to find anything at Wright Pads, it wasn't a problem for even the lay researcher. Hmm. And we just mentioned that in conjunction with the fact that Right, Pat has a long history of keeping secrets and secret testing. You mentioned and Tesla. Well, we could throw Thomas Edison into the mix as well, who was his main competition and in many ways his Judas. He betrayed him mm -hmm. and used a lot of Tesla's own technology for his own. Yes, and it also has to feel very significant that our current president's uncle is the very MIT scientist who was given full access to assessing Tesla's papers, an uncle he talks a lot about. Now he's launching a space force, and his political opponents seem to be the ones driving the current UFO narrative. And I don't know, but I would definitely suspect that Tesla's work is at least relevant to the UFO question. And I guess I would ask how you guys assess that. I mean, it's very curious that in this big world that this particular guy is president and he has such a connection to technological secrets that are wrapped up in the UFO data. And as we know, Tesla was occasionally even asked about UFOs. And publicly, he would always downplay the situation. And I think it was mainly because he had, you know, his biggest obstacle was securing government funding. And it was no different than Robert Goddard, the true father of modern rocketry, who happens to be from Roswell. And again, if they don't secure the funding, and we have to remember, of which the best example of all would be the late Carl Sagan. The fact that you go back to Sagan's first writings on UFOs back in the late 60s, he was actually quite positive. He was a bit of an advocate. He was very open to the idea that we were being visited but how quickly they sell their souls to the devil, so to speak, and they get their grants, they get their government funding on their pet projects, and just like that, well, you have to essentially cooperate with the puppeteer. And as a result, they totally, you know, become part of the skeptical community. And that's one of the reasons that Dr. J. Allen Hynek was so genuine for the fact that he was initially a skeptic. He was their chief debunker. They would trot him out only when they needed him to explain away 
a particular signing, but he was genuine. He was enough of a scientist that he realized that something was amiss, something was going on here, that all these witnesses just could not be lying. And as far as whether it's the SETI program or even mentioning Sagan, the fact that once the government carrot is dangled in front of them, how often they sell their souls. Mm. Totally agree. I'm open to that, but they haven't taken me up on that. So Yeah, Tom, Tom's up to about, what are you up about, 150 right now? <laughs> yes, when, we, when, we, when Don and I talk on the phone, once in a while we hear a click or two, and I always mention to Don that in case they're listening, I'm available. Yeah, I'm out of here for a couple of Yeah. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's funny. But to get into the meat of Roswell, you write that when it comes to the things recovered from the site, on top of the four dead bodies and the one that survived the crash, we have four categories of wreckage. Can you tell the people about these wreckage categories? Yes. There were three crash sites involved in Roswell. There was what the so-called debris field site, which was a site below the location where the ship exploded. The ship didn't crash, it exploded in the air. We believe it was from a lightning strike, Greg. It was either an internal explosion or a lightning strike because we have several witnesses who said, well, I heard a muffled explosion during a thunder and lightning storm, which they have during that time of the year down in New Mexico. So the first site is the debris field site where all this strange small pieces of metal were found. There was something called memory metal. We call it memory metal. It's our holy grail. That's what we're looking for. It's metal that you can't scratch, you can't cut, you can't deform it permanently in any way. It's light as a feather, very thin but you can wad it up into a ball in your hand. It feels like you don't have anything in your hand. Open your hand and it unfurls itself. Mm. Okay. And like I said, it's indestructible. And we've been trying to back engineer it ever since. Then there are the pieces that are thin, like thin aluminum, but you can't bend them. You can't take a sledgehammer to them and crack them or do anything to them the sledgehammer will come back and hit you in the nose, you know? So that's a second type. Very stiff, indestructible, can't scratch it. Then you have the memory metal. The third type was something that Jesse Marcel and Marcel Sr. talked about, this I-beam. It's shaped like, it's like a rod, but it's on a cross section, it's shaped like an eye. And on that I-beam were symbols strange symbols, strange markings that we had uh, linguists come in, they couldn't decipher it. So we believe, at least I do anyway, that that I-beam had something to do with the propulsion of the ship. Sort of like in the movie, the Da Vinci Code, you know, where they want to open the door, they have this little thing they insert into a key, and that opens the whatever they were looking for. So I think the I-beam was something to do with the either directional or guiding the ship in some way. So that's the third type. The fourth type, well, I guess actually there was a two more. One was the monofilament, like fiber optics. It, it, it sort of atom braided the 
fiber optics that we have today. There was a lot of that, and there was uh, something that Jesse Jr. talked about this resembled Bakelite. I have no idea what that, the purpose or what it, you know, it, but it resembled Bakelite. And I guess the, there was another, you know, the inner cabin or a egg-shaped escape pod of some sort continued on after the ship exploded and two beings were thrown out and met their fate on a low bluff about two miles east of the debris field site. We call it the Deep Rocker body site because it was Deep Rocker who showed his mother where it was and she showed us. So it's where two bodies had come down and, you know, met their hereafter. But after the explosion, the inner cabin survived and carried on another trajectory for about 30 miles, 35 miles east-southeast towards Roswell came to rest about 32 miles north-northwest of Roswell. And there they found two more bodies that were dead and one that was alive and still walking around. So I think that was a little more than four, but that's basically what all the wreckage consisted of. Yes, that is a great summary. And it's definitely fascinating to try to follow the chain of custody of this material and the bodies. And of course, your book is about all the sagas that take this stuff to Wright Patterson. I would ask, in more recent years, wouldn't the spotlight be better put on Lockheed Martin or Boeing or Bigelow Airspace and the rest of the corporate eternals? Isn't that most likely where this stuff is now with guys like uh, Jacques Vallée and the Invisible College and the Silicon Valley tech billionaires? Well, yes, of course. In fact, just to remind your audience, the government slash military doesn't manufacture anything. Everything is contracted out to the private sector. And as a result, through the years, we've had first-hand witnesses at Battelle Institute, Rand Corporation, Hughes Aircraft, General Electric, Boeing, Bureau of Standards, all talking about having an opportunity to test and possibly come up with a breakthrough regarding some of the Roswell material. We had a retired base commander told us that much of the physical evidence that was housed and tested at Wright Pat was all cleared out in the early 80s. And as he put it, they had a hell of a time bringing things in and moving things out, given that they were essentially in downtown Dayton. When you consider the remote areas of the Southwest and the mountainous ranges that many of our military facilities have been established, it was really just being connected with the East Coast and the Pentagon that they even happened to establish a base in Dayton, Ohio, back during World War One, for that matter. Greg, I'd like to add that we believe, at least I do, that the UFO, let's call them artifacts, you know, physical and biological, not only Roswell, but the UFO artifacts are now in private hands. And by private hands, I mean Lockheed Martin, Battelle Memorial, and all the other government contractors, rather than being in the possession of the military. So we believe that. I think Don does, but I do. 
Yes, 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 wholeheartedly. And one of the reasons being that private organizations are not subject to FOIA requests where the government entities are. So that's one of the reasons. I don't say that's the entire reason, but they're not subject to FOIA inquiries. Tom, why don't you even cite the example or the, the, the comments by uh, the likes like uh, Ben Rich, for example? Yes. I don't know what the occasion was, but Ben Rich was being queried about a number of things. And one of them, uh, what about UFOs, Mr. Rich? He says, well, they're the ones that we make and the ones that they make. And they meaning someone off planet. And he also added a comment on another occasion that we currently have the technology to take E.T. home. So we've long heard and we've always suspected that, specifically in the military, the old order did not pass it down to the new. Most of them took it with them. And I'm talking about the knowledge of what they knew to be the truth, specifically regarding Roswell and, and UFOs in general. And there's this young, growing faction within the military that wants this to come out. They desire for this to finally come out and acknowledge what they've been observing and experiencing for all these decades. But they don't have access. They don't have clearance. And that's where Tom and I, and he's correct, we believe that because, and that's where Eisenhower is, you know, warning the country about the military-industrial complex essentially running things. And this would be the private corporations that they relied on for all these military contracts, providing them with all their armory, their weaponry, and they essentially took over. They right now control as far as the physical evidence of what we would as far as classify as the reality of the UFO phenomenon. Yes, great summary. And I'm very much on that page in terms of who had it and who's kept control of it. And that kind of brings it full circle to make me wonder, is the reverse engineering maybe complete enough now that they can use this stuff for a higher agenda? And that's why it's finally in the mainstream media, in the CIA controlled press, because there's some other agenda behind there that maybe we don't even understand yet. Some kind of complex military gamesmanship, but I wonder if that's any indication as to how far they've gotten, the fact that now, of all times, it's actually out there in the media. Well, you know, Greg, Don and I, we, we don't usually, you know, talk about these things. We're so focused on Roswell. It's labor-intensive over this last quarter century. We don't speculate where they're from, why they're here, those sorts of things. And it's difficult for me because we've, we've never talked about these things. But if you're talking about back engineering, we know that that happened. We could relate to that. And, you know, something like a CIA involvement of, in that, we just haven't discussed those things. But we do know that they tried to re-engineer this stuff. And the only one that I subscribe to, because, you know, say, oh, transistors came from Roswell, uh, Bioprostics, yeah. this and that and the other thing, uh, the only thing that's come, uh, that I have enough, there's enough substantiated documentation that came out that I say, okay, well, that I believe was traceable back to Roswell. And that's the, the memory metal. They wanted to find out how they could re-engineer this slight 
of pliable metal, let's call it metal, that was indestructible. And they sent it to Patel Memorial Institute after the crash. And we have the documentation from the project that they tried to, you know, different combinations of elements to try to reproduce this. And they came up with something they called nitinol. It was a, an amalgam of nickel and titanium. And not only that, but the Patel Memorial Institute didn't want to have their logo associated with the UFOs. So they laundered it through the Naval Ordnance Lab down in Washington or Maryland. And the Naval Ordnance Lab had a press conference that they had discovered a new amalgam called nitinol. The NI, you know, stands for nickel. The TI stands for titanium. And the NOL stands for the Naval Ordnance Lab. Greg, you can go online and buy nitinol by the sheet, by the roll by the coil, you name it, it's available. But that has its origins, I believe, because it's well-documented, that project, back with the Roswell crash. Yes, nitinol is a very exciting element. It could definitely speak to that reverse engineering. And it is interesting that you mentioned the Naval Ordnance Lab as part of its abbreviation. And we talked about the gamesmanship between different groups. It's like this, again, is a Navy right. thing. That's kind of interesting, right? See, one thing that UFO researchers have contemplated, speculated, and discussed for many years is that we have focused too much on the Air Force. Now, granted, Project Sign, Project Grudge, Project Blue Book, the most famous of the three, they were the ones releasing, disclosing you know, their efforts to come up with a resolution to the mystery behind the UFOs. But, you know, the Air Force is very limited in their global scope, their global surveillance, aside from spy planes. But the Navy is able to, you know, truly, you know, draw intelligence information from many more sources, much more territory. And I think that's why many of us have felt that it was the Navy. That's why naval intelligence has really had a much greater influence on world affairs than the Air Force ever has. Mm. Yes, I think that you're right. I mean, we got to look at all the branches and dig up all the secrets. And I am curious about the wider scope of UFO research and even crashed crafts. You mentioned in the book that one of your witnesses was told by Warner Von Braun that there had been at least three crashes recovered. And as you said, you're hyper-focused on Roswell. And I guess I'm curious, because it seems like we have a lot of other cases worth looking into. They just didn't have a press release. We know the Roswell story. We have about as much info into the case as we can get. More information just sort of confirms what we know. Do you think you might be missing the forest by only studying one tree? Well, for myself, I used to be interested in, you know, the UFO panoply, the broader picture. But when I read the 1980 book by Moore and Berlitz, the Roswell incident, for me, I think Don's more interested in other things than I am, UFO speaking. But for me, it, it affected me so much that all the other UFO cases just disappeared for me. And 
I was only interested in this one case because it wasn't lights in the sky. Oh, I saw a light up there. It did a right angle. Oh, my goodness. What about what, what, what could that be, Mr. Carey? You know, you get tired of that stuff. But the Roswell case, it had a nuts and bolts craft that crashed, not a light in the sky, but a nuts and bolts craft. It had wreckage. It had bodies on it, little three and a half to four foot tall bodies with big heads. And there there was a government cover up and threats. It had everything that a mystery thriller had and all the other UFO phenomena. Just, uh, uh, Greg, I'm sorry, but it doesn't interest me. Hmm. And you'll call this a labor of love. It certainly was a labor of extreme interest for me to be on this one case since 1991. Don was on for a little longer. But this is for me. You remember, I don't know if you remember the movie The Verdict that starred Paul Newman, where he was this over-the-hill lawyer and he got this paraplegic case and his assistant there said he played a, a character's name was Frank Alvin. He said, Frank, you got to take their offer. It was an offer to settle the case. He said, no, no, this is the case. This is the only case. And that's the way I look at it. And when you ask me things about the CIA, it's things that I just don't, I don't see. I but just, yet, but hmm. yet it is true that the right cat book we make reference to a lot of the testimony regarding other alleged crashes through the 50s into the 60s and, and certainly much emphasis on the late leonard stringfield's files which in my case i'm personally very disappointed because for having been with the center for ufo studies we were promised to acquire his files at the time of his passing because we, for the first time, we would have had all the names and places that he had kept confidential up to that time. And I love the chase. I love as far as solidifying Roswell by even incorporating other cases, suggesting that if one happened, then others, you know, most likely happen as well in reference to UFO crashes and recoveries. Fair. I mean, I definitely respect the dedication you guys have had to uncovering this case. Greg, here's the other thing. Suppose, you know, in 1997, they had that big brouhaha, you know, it's the 50th anniversary of the Roswell. Suppose all the investigators went home at that point. That's what we would have. You know, we would have this big question. Oh, my goodness. Did it happen or didn't it happen? Well, Don and I have spent the rest of, you know, since 1997, as a team, to conduct a proactive investigation of Roswell. Like I said, it's labor-intensive. We have interviewed over 600 witnesses that we have really nailed this case. This is what makes me mad. We have nailed this case with over 600 witnesses, and each one knows just a little bit of the story. And it's been our job to put the little bits together to make a whole picture here. If we hadn't done that, you know, Roswell would be just another, oh, well, that was a case, you know, that they thought this and nothing has happened since. Well, I'm sorry. We moved the football across the goal line, in my view, and it took a lot of work to do that. You know, we've had five archaeological digs at the crash site, the debris field. Yes. We have verified that from multiple first and second hand witnesses down to what was where and where a gouge was and the 
outer perimeter and how far the debris extended and who found what where. And no one else can say that about any other case. They're trying to establish that something happened at all. In our case, it's a matter of historic fact that something crashed, left a debris field of a sizable proportions, and here we are where even the Air Force concurs that we're at the right site because they obviously need a project mogul crash location. But, you know, that's why I think so many of our colleagues are even jealous, and at times they personally attack us because uh, Tom likes to say that Roswell takes all the air out of the room when it's discussed, especially at conferences and in, in private discussion, because it is a matter of historic fact. The others are just trying to prove something happened at all. Hmm. Well, I respect your opinion for sure. And I wanted to ask a little more about Wright-Patterson itself, this major base in Ohio. You write, if the Pentagon is considered the brains of the Air Force, then Wright-Patterson is certainly its heart. Well, we all hear the wreckage and alien bodies were transported to Area 51, but pieces went all over to Fort Worth, to Lockheed Martin, and the deep corporate nexus. Why is it so significant that a lot of this stuff went to Wright-Patterson, so much so that this is your second book on this element of the story? Well, you know, the, the history of Wright-Patterson will make your head explode. It just, it's going through so many different name changes, you know, McCookfield and all that. We won't get into that. It's, it, I mean, my eyes glaze over just on that history, but I like to pick it up during World War II when it was Wright Field and Patterson Field. At Wright Field, you know, this is where all of the captured enemy aircraft went for analysis. There were back engineering. And they did that in Hangar 23, which became, by popular nomenclature, the Hangar 18. All of the captured Axis fighter planes and what have you went there to be taken apart to see what made them tick and uh, try to improve upon what they analyzed in our own fighter craft that would uh, defeat them. So the back engineering capability was at right field. Also, they had a, an advanced aeromedical facility for biological material. So beyond its importance where intelligence, the intelligence focus was at Wright-Patterson. So it was only natural that something of a foreign nature went to Wright-Patterson because they already were set up to handle analysis and back engineering, and what have you. So that's why it went to Wright-Patterson. But like Don said earlier, the town of Dayton built up right around the, the base. And when you're, you know, testing new aircraft, which is what they did there, you know, you can have an accident and a lot of people would be killed. So in the early 1950s, when they're starting to think about the uh, spy planes, this most notably the U-2 and later on the SR-71 Blackbird, they wanted a more remote facility which became Area 51 in north northwest of Nevada. But it all started at Wright-Patterson in Dayton, Ohio, where all those Air Force functions took place. You know, Greg, a lot of our colleagues even suggest that Roswell ended at Roswell or that it ended with the balloon press conference at Fort Worth, Texas with General Ramey. But it is also an historic fact that the wreckage 
from Roswell went to Wright-Patterson. Even the Pentagon announced that at the time. And in heaven's name, why would you need to test rubber, foil, wood, string, and tape to see what made it fly? As they would suggest, the uh, mogul balloon went to right field for testing back at that time. And the irony that the very first UFO project and then the two subsequent originated were headquartered at Wright-Patterson. Project Sign, Grudge, and Blue Book were all headquartered at Wright-Patterson. And they, they had the FTD, the Foreign Technology Division is the specific one. And the foreign technology they were originally concerned with was like, you know, uh, Messerschmitts that Don flew and you know, uh, Mitsubishis and MiGs and Russian aircraft. So that's what the original intent was. But when they got something like really foreign from off the planet, that's that's where they sent it because they were the only ones set up to handle something like that. Hmm. Fair enough. Yes, it's definitely an important chapter of our history. And I know we might never get the full story, but we have enough to feel confident that the basic shape of Roswell has some definite truth to it. What drives you guys to keep plugging away here? As you note, a lot of the witnesses are dead now. The further up the timeline you get, the more efficient the quarantine seems to be. You've obviously confirmed the story through all these investigative elements. What more are you looking for? What would really complete this journey for you guys? A simple, uh, Greg, a piece of physical evidence would top it off. And as we have had many attorneys, we've even had two judges firstly tell us that we could take this into any court of law and win hands down. Because keeping in mind, the government is presently up to four official explanations. And we're the ones who have all the witnesses regarding our definition as to what happened back in 1947. So who would win? <laughs> I mean, we have to accept that all of history is based on personal observation, personal accounts. People are, you know, placed on death row. They're nothing more than being able to demonstrate that they have the preponderance of eyewitness testimony. And that is precisely where we stand with Roswell. The fact that we have all the witnesses. They have none. And all they can say is, but you can't prove it. But unlike all the other UFO cases, we could point the finger right back at them and say, but you have the proof. You've been hiding it all these years. And that's why the likes of the late Senator Barry Goldwater and the late Congressman Stephen Schiff and even former presidents Clinton and Carter, former governor of New Mexico, Bill Richardson, you know, could all be on this program right now and all lamenting the fact that they couldn't get the truth about Roswell either. So then we're coming back to the power brokers, the ones who are actually running things. And then we've come full circle. We're saying they also control the truth about the UFO phenomena and then vis-a-vis -vis Roswell. Mm. Well, cheers to that. Totally agree. And like so many things we talk about on this show, we have the numbers. We have a lot of data they love to dismiss, but you just can't break through the system for that very reason you just mentioned. So very cool. Well, I hope you guys find that pot of gold at the end of the end of the rainbow. I've got a lot of respect for the dedication you both have. Thanks for sharing your knowledge. Uh, before we really go, tell people 
about the book, about the other books, anything else you got working on or the website even that you guys share? Well, we have the current book came out a few weeks ago. We have another book coming out this summer or early fall called, it's a coffee table type book called uh, Roswell, the Chronological Pictorial. We're really excited about that. It tells the story of Roswell start to finish in pictures that we've accumulated over the quarter century that we've been working on the case. And next year, the book next year will be out in June, we believe, called Roswell Case Closed. And that sort of talks about most of the witnesses, 99% are gone now. So we put our final book together and it will be out next Oh, early summer called Roswell Case Closed. So that's what we have on the immediate horizon are the two books that will be coming out besides the one we discussed today. Very cool. Well, thanks for sharing your knowledge with us. You guys definitely know a lot and keep plugging away. Thanks for your time. Thank you, Greg. Thank you. Sweet ladies of Lynchfield, dear listeners, July wrapping up nicely for us. Had to pay homage to the Roswell incident after 72 years. Well, I didn't have to, but New Page sent the book out to me, and I kind of held on to it for a while. I wasn't sure if we were going to fit this in or not, but I thought if I really brought my A game and asked some deep and challenging questions, then we might end up with something better than another roswell 101 show and you can be the judge of that i know i handled this interview a bit differently than usual but i thought it was warranted given everything that's going on i mean it's pretty common over the course of the two-hour interviews for me to save room for some questions that extrapolate pretty far out from the base that's laid by the actual work of the guest or guests And I respect Tom and Don a lot. What they do is not easy. It's meticulous and detailed. And of course, we're all on the same side here. But I struggle with how a person can be fascinated with only the Roswell incident and have no interest in the wider scope of the UFO mystery. Even just the military side of it. I mean, to me, context matters. And anything that surrounds the Roswell incident should matter. If Warner Von Braun said that there were two other crashes, which I took to mean disconnected crashes, but even if he didn't say it, there are others, I don't get how they could register a zero on the excitement scale, but Roswell is hitting in the red zone. It doesn't make sense to me, but it doesn't have to make sense to me. Everybody can be interested in whatever they want to be interested in. And maybe we need this sort of hyper-focus from at least a few people. Their dedication is obviously commendable, and this book does add several layers to the credibility cake. It's a thick cake at this point, but we're in an era where we are losing people who even know a guy who knows a guy who saw something back in 1947. So I am glad Tom and Don are keeping it on the record, adding to the history. But if you have 50 witnesses and anecdotes that confirm most of the major details of something, do you need 50 more? Is there a point where we say, okay, this is more or less confirmed, now let's see what it means. Let's push on this a bit further. 
Because right now we're dealing with a disclosure rollout on major networks with a lot of the talking heads finally handed their talking points on this subject. And it's concerning. Or it should be. Harry Reid, CIA intelligence officers, I suggest you watch this stuff with a very skeptical eye. And I guess when this stuff started to be coordinated across the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, CNN, Fox, and MSNBC, I started to think, okay, maybe it's time to put the joking aside for a minute. This isn't just some silly asshole from a pop-punk band. These are dangerous people trying to control a narrative with a very narrow frame that ultimately could be used to let the war machine do its thing or at least to deceive the public into thinking that the UFO situation is as simple as mechanical crafts from hostile invaders. We know better than that. We know it's a much richer and deeper and long-term phenomenon relating to much more than the military-industrial complex. And we need to be just a bit on guard, I think. And people dealing with this sort of UFO research have to be super careful right now. Just with what they're putting out there and signing off on. And who they're getting in bed with. Obviously, speculation is a major ingredient in the THC recipe. A lot of things we want to know are off the table, hidden behind the curtain, so you gotta guess. But when it starts to relate to real operations, I tighten up a little. It's not just for fun anymore, you know? But maybe that's why today's guests don't want to comment outside of their Roswell focus. I respect that. But I just don't think anything makes total sense in isolation. It's all right. But there are nuances in the book that they've produced that I think are really interesting, despite being a person already familiar with the Roswell case, like we all are. So if you are interested in that case overall and the Wright-Patterson connection, it's a very valuable book on an important saga in our history. I thank them for their contribution. It's easy to criticize, but I think if a lot of people compared their own contribution before criticizing, they wouldn't get very far. But I do expect the listeners who got through this interview to see a lot of little subtleties that were worth the price of admission. But again, that's for you to decide. And of course, Tom and Don both stuck around for a second hour. If you only heard the first free hour, you got to consider becoming a Plus member and getting the full two-hour interviews. In this one, we talked about Tom and Don's actual real-world visits to the crash site and some of the readings they got. Space travel and quantum physics. Tom and Don's... Thoughts on Philip Corso and Bob Lazar, elements of disinformation in the Roswell research, and a lot of other stuff. So dive in, the water is fine, and we have a very deep archive for you to find all sorts of great stuff to get into. But we are coming in hot at the zero hour on the 31st of the month. But that's going to do it for me, guys. I've done my part. Your move disclosure rollout directors, metamaterial manipulators, and Area 51 stormers, your fucking move. Woke up this morning with light in my eyes, and then realized it was dark outside. 
It was light coming down from the sky. I don't know who or why. Must be those strangers that come every night, whose saucer-shaped light put people uptight. Leave blue-green footprints that glow in the dark. I hope. And they get home all right. Hey, Mr. Spaceman, won't you please take me along? I won't do anything wrong. Hey, Mr. Spaceman, won't you please take me along? The highest side. Woke up this morning. I was feeling quite weird. I had flies in my beard. My toothpaste was smeared. I opened my window. They written my name. Said so long. We'll see. Thank you.